Welcome to Smart Casual, Images Fashion Podcast in collaboration with Kildare Village, dealing with personal style in a way that speaks to you. Hosted by me, Fashion Director Marie Kelly. And me, Aideen O'Connell, Image.ie staff writer. And me, Sarah Rickard, Fashion Stylist and Creative Consultant. In our 20s, 30s and 40s, we're three women across three decades with three unique perspectives on how fashion shapes the world. Fashion and personal style are about a lot more than the clothes we choose to put on every morning. They're about the world we live in and who we choose to be. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to fashion, and we certainly love a chat. Welcome to Smart Casual. Thank you. You're so welcome to Emma this evening for our live recording of Smart Casual, which is Image Media and Kildare Village's fashion podcast. Um, hopefully you've all had a little bit of a chance to look around the exhibition. Um, it is a partnership between IMA and Kildare Village and it will be on view until March 2020, not just here at IMA, but also there will be pieces installed in Kildare Village. So I do advise you to go down and have a look at these incredible pieces. Um, as I said, it will be on view until March 2020. So after our conversation this evening, we will open it up to the floor and we would really love to hear any thoughts you have or um, hear any of your questions. Um, but first, I would love to welcome to the stage Senior Curator and Head of Exhibitions at Inna, Rachel Thomas. It's such a pleasure to um, have you here, Rachel, um, and it's such a thrill for me to be speaking to you. Um, the first time I saw Rachel, she was uh, chairing a panel discussion, uh, and she was so incredibly articulate and interesting um, that immediately I got in touch and wanted to feature in the magazine because she was so fantastic. So it's really um, exciting and a little bit intimidating for me to be here chatting to you. <laughs> so um, this exhibition, uh, Rachel, it's called Desire, a revision from the 20th century to the digital age. With the wonderful book that accompanies the exhibition, um, I read your beautiful essay and you talked about wanting to um, question or find out why this theme of desire is, um, I guess, so interesting to us. And I wonder, after curating the exhibition, what conclusions have you come to? That's a very good question. I just want to welcome everybody tonight to the Irish Museum and whatnot. A very warm welcome. Um, the show itself was two years of research, and we looked at seven points of desire. So, you know, you can look at desire in the subconscious, politics of desire, desire of sexual identity, very long kind of theories around that. And I wanted to revisit what desire meant from surrealism. So we look at the power of the gaze, the power of the gaze of the male, and we look into where we are now. So after we did all that research, done the show, and you ask me, what do I think now? Well, now... I have a kind of almost a, a philosophical view of what desire means, and it, it cuts both ways. I think there's a darker side of desire, that it's insatiable. We all want something. We all desire. We all want to know. We all want to strive. We all need something. But the flip side of that is a pull. Like, what, what's the value we gain or we lose? And to uh, give you a quote, actually, I found a Carl Jung quote that connects all this. The artist's life cannot be otherwise than full of conflicts. The two forces are war within him or her. On the one hand, the common human longs for happiness, satisfaction, security in life, and on the other, a ruthless passion for creation, which may go as far as to override every personal desire. 
There are hardly any exceptions to rule that a person must pay dearly for that divine gift of creative fire. It's a very hard Jungian concept, but from my reflection, I think it does go from that the kind of torn parts of desire, the conflict within yourself, the conflict with the artist's life, to they strive to create, you know, they're creating for us a world of desire, but it goes beyond that into the world of spirituality. So I think there's a philosophical sense of oneself, the ego, going to a spirituality, which to be, that's the next stage to be explored. It's a really mammoth topic. Yeah. <laughs> Just listening to you talk about it there, I mean, it, it, it really is huge, isn't it, in terms of, like, like you say, it involves spirituality and, you know, the, there's so many different elements to this idea of desire. It is. I think it's, it's an age-old theme, mm. which is, that's why it's kept its, its luster. Mm. It's kept its relevance mm. now that everybody can connect to desire. Um, I think in the book we mentioned the earliest term was French medieval, to long for, to look for the stars, mm. that, that man or woman always had a quest to strive. And it was that exploration that we took off from the show. We were exploring not a chronological, historical view of, of desire, but we're looking at it now. What does it mean to us in the 21st century? Um, last week I was very lucky to get a mini tour of the exhibition, um, and you talked a lot about this idea of revisionism. Um, not just revisionism of this topic of desire, but revisionism of the artistic canon. Um, and I always find that interesting. When I was studying literature in university, we talked a lot about um, revisionism of the literary canon um, and you know, who decides what has value, what writers, artists have value, what pieces of work have value. Um, and I, I imagine that was a very important part of this exhibition, that, that, that re-looking at the canon. Exactly. That, that is pivotal to the moment. We're living in exciting times. Age, class who you are, why you are, is being revised. And it's been revised in that notion of history. What is history? What is art history? So by looking at that in the art historical canon, there's a revisionist history that you mentioned, which is looking at the place of the female in art, looking at places of different races and origins. So that connected to the core of the show initially, that we thought, let's look at, from surrealism, what I mentioned, the power of the male gaze. And that was very much the art canon of saying it was the man. So you had Man Ray looking at Lee Miller, so the male looking at the female, and the, the female was seen as the muse, the beautiful muse that couldn't do much. She was yeah. either torn, cut up, her bodies, you know, if you think about all those images, that's where we have some of the masterworks in the show. It's not to say I'm anti-male, it was more like, well, where's the balance in that? So to revise the canon, we included a lot of female artists, and it, actually I was talking to one member of the audience today that the show felt like a feminine power. But to me, it's a quality of power and actually readdressing the art canon so female artists are more celebrated. And a lot of the shows at IMA would put that revisionist canon in. That We showed somebody that was 91, Monier Shiraudi, Farnaman Man, last year. And she's been reconsidered by the Tate, the Guggenheim Museum. Mm. But more importantly, it's actually re-questioning art's role, the power of art, and actually us viewing that. We, we are the tastemakers. We can all do that. Go to the museum, say your voice. And art is very much reflective of society. So that revisionist history is happening now. So it's important to document that. And that's what contemporary art does. Contemporary art is a reflection of lives. Louise Bourgeois, the famous artist, said, art's about life and life is about art. So we were just holding up a mirror. When we do exhibitions, we usually question what is going on, what are artists interested in. And that revisionist history is very current. So do, does that kind of make the idea of a canon kind of obsolete now? Or if there's, if, if there's this constant kind of revisionism of it? 
You, you need a canon to base something on. It's, it's a measure. Okay. It's an art historical measure, or it would be a kind of scientific or academic premise. But the canon needs to be questioned and then reshaped, and that will shape itself in time. But it's good that all these exhibitions, these debates, even the government and society is all being questioned. And by doing that, then we can only go forward to a new way. Okay. And interest, well, one thing I thought that was really interesting about this exhibition was that one of the artists, uh, Janine Figgis, I think is her name, you found her on Instagram. And um, quite an unorthodox way, probably to, well, certainly in the past, to find a designer, or sorry, an artist to include in an exhibition of this kind of caliber and stature. Um, just tell me about how you found her and why her work, why, why you thought her work would sit beautifully within this exhibition. That's a great question. Um, as a curator, you would you do your um, knowledge of building how you put a show together through academia, through books, going to art fairs, going to studio visits, um, a whole host of knowledge which would be more traditional. This tool has changed. I was talking to my co-curator, Yuko Hakasawa, and Instagram has been part of our tool, something we should embrace. It's not a light tool. It's a very powerful tool in this new century. So I was scrolling through one night, checking images, and I discovered her, and I actually thought she was in LA. So I was so shocked when she lived up the road in Wicklow. <laughs> it was brilliant. And then uh, Geneve herself said that not many curators have come to see her. So it was a real pairing of our work, and her work was discovered as well. She's very much a, an Irish practitioner, but she is celebrated internationally. People like Mark Jacobs by her work. Wow. Giles Deacon follows her. Um, so this is a really sick story that we, we did, these worlds co you know, co-elided, yeah. and she was so happy to have the show at Emma. And, and why I connected with her, because A, I didn't know she was Irish, didn't know where she was from, but the images showed um, the kind of excessive desire, the beauty, but almost like the party's over, what happens in the deep of night. Mm. So I asked her what her influence, I asked to meet her in the studio, which was great, it was so local at Wicklow, who influenced her? And she said, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's film, Dracula which is very much dark, and she said the dark side of desire, when you have too much, that alter ego we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's why in the show we placed her next to Koji, an artist that died when he was 26. He's got a famous image, um, I know you're on podcast, you can only imagine this, but the audience here has seen some of the work. Um, the one I love is that when you see the hand and it's burnt out, you've got almost like fire within the palm, because he's scrolling too much, but he got obsessed with the media's image that you had so many likes, you had to look a certain way and would go for days in the forest. And then he went off and he actually did um, drown in the sea and didn't come back. His parents came to the show, but he said the weight of the media obsession with images was too much and the dark side of desire overtook him. So we placed the two together to show very much a profound effect that the, the viewer can see the beauty and the excess, but also to question. I mean, these are very real issues. Our art is real, art is alive, it's vital, but it's also questioning. It's there to challenge you, it's there to excite you, it's there to inspire you. And I think that's what the ingredients of an exhibition should take you forward. And I guess another really important aspect of this exhibition is the fact that the works will be on view, not just in Emma, but as I said already, at the village. <laughs> um, is that exciting for you to think that you know, you'll reach a, a, fresh, a completely fresh audience? I think it's brilliant, and a lot more of these partnerships should be happening here. It ex I think the audience to connect um, fashion outside of the city with art and have that experience of work, walking through the sculptures or seeing the artworks is about exchange, mm. an exchange of experience, exchange of ideas. And artists historically have always wanted to connect that. 
I mean, a great example, um, I love Salvador Dali when he had an exhibition in Paris and he brought a taxi with minicabs full of snails in and Man Ray got all these wires that connect so the audience would trip up. It's all about an encounter. Art is an encounter, an experience. So therefore, this has gone back. So I think it's great that you know, this is happening and it's, it's so exciting for us and Kildare. And do you see Emma doing more collaborations in the future? Because it's quite unusual really, isn't it? It's historically the first and, and we're so delighted and we thank all the team at Emma and Ashley and Farnella and the team at Kildare and yourselves, thank you. And I think more should happen because it's an exciting progress. Collaboration is the only way to go forward. I think it's good to collaborate with different groups, with your friends, different artistic movements and celebrate. I think there's not enough celebration of talent here. Um, there is an ongoing, an ongoing dialogue about whether or not fashion um, should be considered art. What are your thoughts on that? The importance of fashion um, with art is, is ultimately, is, has always been debated, but you cannot disrespect or, you know, go forward and understand that fashion and art are connected. They've always have been, and it is an art form, right from the start of time. Why we wear, society's influence, the creativity, and that creativity and that brilliance is overpowering, and it shows right, throughout, the, throughout history, and a lot of artists I meet usually become designer, fashion designers. Another one, um, Richard Malone, Giles Deacon, they started off as artists and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So to me, the two are interlinked. And fashion is an art and should be respected as such. It, it does, because when I think about fashion designers, um, they embrace, or they examine, embrace, form, texture, shape, in the same way that, I guess, artists do. And many of them, you know, many of them would be influenced by you know, historical, political, you know, cultural references. So um, there does seem to be a very strong connection there. I mean, there in the past there certainly was a bit of a snobbery maybe in the art world towards fashion designers. Um, do you think that's over and done with now? Have we moved on from that? I think we've moved on from that. Um, and the very the right point on that, I mean, I was influenced by about 15-year-old, by Vivian Westwood. Mm. Um, and I was very much an academic art historian, but I thought Vivian was so political. Mm. And she changed, she looked at counterculture, her and Malcolm McLaren were really into anti-establishment and they did really move that. So I thought by wearing her piece, I was saying something, she was saying something. And also people I mentioned before, like Catherine Hamnett, protest work. So, you know, there, there is a strong political edge to fashion and I think the relevance in society can be seen. Mm. You mentioned Richard Malone there, um, an incredible Irish designer um, who I absolutely love and I think certainly his pieces can be looked on as art. I mean, he is, some of them are incredibly sculptural and I, I think there's a few pieces from his Spring Summer 20 collection which are, you know, they're just like incredible oversized fans kind of sweeping out from the body. They're, they're absolutely beautiful. Um, I know you're a big supporter of Irish design and you're wearing Natalie B. Coleman tonight, looking amazing. Um, <laughs> what you. other designers do you enjoy, appreciate? Well, I, I like Richard, first of all, because he has a poetic sensibility and an understanding of sustainability with the environment. So he uses recycled materials. He really thinks about how to create sculptures and also wearable within the woman. I said to him, what does Lady Boss look like? And he was saying, well, actually, a lot of powerful women wear his work because they feel powerful, they feel strong, and they actually feel they can enjoy themselves. And I think that's why I was attracted to him, is that you can have that feminine strength and not to dress like a man. You can dress like whoever you want to dress like. And I think Richard gives you that platform. Natalie B. Coleman, as we said, I really love her solidarity with women. A lot of her um, projects support women's groups. 
and she actually looks at historical um, queens or you know the different collections and actually plays around with those and to me they're, they're very wearable and I feel confident wearing them. Another designer is Alison um, Kanheely, she's very good. She's very kind of sim very simple pared down but stunning fabrics from Connemara, you know, tweed, the use of silk. So to me it's the use of materiality mm. plus functionality and how we wear them in the real world. Mm. I mean, you have to go to the shops, you have to kind of do things. And as a new mother as well, I, I really appreciate having good fabric or, or feeling nice about myself. Of course, yeah. You mentioned there that your co-curator um, is Japanese and she's the artistic director of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tokyo, I think. That's right. Um, so I wanted to mention one Japanese designer who I think trans has transcended that barrier between fashion and art, and that's the founder of Kamtaka-san. I'm going to pronounce this name very badly, but it's Ri Kawakubo, I think. Um, during the 90s, she was asked to guest edit um, you know, a very prestigious magazine, a very prestigious art magazine called Visionaire. And it seems that she was very early on accepted by both the art worlds and the fashion worlds. Do you agree and are you a fan of her work? I do, and I think I'm a fan of her work in many ways. It's architectural, it has a connectivity, there's a sense of um, seriousness, but a sense of fun, and the two worlds collide. Another example is Iziat Miyaki, that actually Yuko worked with, and Yuko said she did some silent protests where, and Richard did it at the opening night at Emma, for the way, for Desire, where we got a lot of models to wear the clothes as a silent protest, but friends, models, to kind of do this protest of collaboration. And Yuko did that with Izzy Miyake too. Ah, so I think this, is, this should go on. More should happen. More fun, more freedom, more liberty. Um, I mean, why not? Mm, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, fashion is without doubt inextricably linked to the notion of desire. And interestingly, one of our regular features in, in Image Magazine is called Want, Need, Love, which <laughs> kind of pretty much sums that up. Um, how, do you, how do you think the, exhibi the exhibition reflects on that relationship? Yeah, desire is, is what we need or want, materiality, physicality, how you look. I can answer that in two ways. The, I think the desire itself, it, the this, this show is very sensual. We purposely did a layout and artworks that were chosen around the world, which represented from early surrealism to now, um, and lots of artists from around, you know, around the world representing colours, textures. And a classic example is Michelena Thomas. Which I chose her because she's shown female empowerment of desire, the gaze. That I was saying back, that usually yes. it was the man's right. Michelena, really stridently, she's looking out so strong. She, her chest, you know, you can see her, her chest, her sexuality, but she's used crystals, she's used sequins, and they're not to be seen as soft material. Art historically, they'd be seen as, you know, soft, you need oil as a Jackson Pollock. She's using them as female empowerment, and it looks beautiful. So in a sense, it's desirable, it's sensual, it kind of calls you in. Genevieve Figgis calls you in. A lot of the artworks, it's beautiful to look at, that you're enraptured by it. So I think on that level, we wanted a sensuality and a physicality about the show. On the second level of desire, there's a question of, of why we do things, why we want things. And some of the pieces talk you through that questioning. So I think that's why it connects very well. Mm, certainly. Um, again, I mentioned the book that comes with the exhibition already, and it, it, there's a, some really incredible essays and fascinating um, insights in it. Um, and there was a quote in it from an architect, Kevin Roach, um, and he said that art comes hard. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Does art always come hard? 
It doesn't have to. And I think we're looking at new politics. We have to be strong in the politics, and art does have to be hard to grab attention. But art can be intellectually hard in some ways too. But it can be soft, that it can change your life in many ways, and, and unexpected ways. Art, art should be hard to transcend you, to transform. A chance to change, a chance to think. And I think that's where desire connects to. You can have a desire to transform. And that's what we wanted to say. The whole show actually is about transformation and exchange. So there is that hard element. Some of the works really are... Like the gaming is very hard. It's very social issues about people getting addicted to gaming. But it looks very beautiful. But again, there's a chance to connect back and, and reflect on what art means to you. Um, probably an unfair question, but do you have a favourite piece in the exhibition? That's a good question, and I'm, I was speaking to Yuko about this um, when we were talking about what's our favourites, and I have to say that they all hang together. It's really hard to pick out a favourite of a work because we did actually see the show as a collective, a collective of strength, a collective of voices, because not one voice should say what desire is, like not one person. You know, it should be a collective response. There are highlights that we look at different themes, like I can talk about some artists that talk through different themes, but I do think it hangs together as a collective sensibility. And Yuko told me that was a very Japanese concept. You should never single out, it's always supportive, and you should also thank the whole group as a whole. Oh, that's a lovely um, sort of mentality. Yeah, it? I think really, it's a... really, really nice. Um, one artist uh, featured in the exhibition that I did particularly want to mention, probably because she's so well known, is Tracy Emin. And just from the brief um, preview I got, I thought that her works were incredibly personal and incredibly raw, as opposed to some of the more abstract ideas mm. probably through the exhibition. Was she um, an important person, an important artist to have within this exhibition, this specific exhibition? Yeah, Tracy's work from the start we wanted to put in the show. Um, I did many studio visits with Tracy and know her quite well um, in, in thinking about how we could frame this in the correct way because desire is incredibly painful. Desire of getting your true love, desire of your heart being broken. Uh, she has, she obviously, she's known for her abortions, her failed relationships, and it's incredibly tender. It's incredibly human. So we wanted to show that laid bare. And Tracy is a good example of an artist that actually does show her life at your feet. She shows all her emotions. It's not faked. It really is the real thing. She gives her a whole, whole body, her soul, to show the audience. And I think it's a very brave artist. So that desire is opening up her whole world to you. I mean, some of those things we don't talk about to our friends. We keep them quiet. She's opening all these issues. And I think it's very important to share that desire, which is painful and tender, and moments where she tries to find happiness. Mm. So I think that was important to show that in the exhibition. And I think it's a really nice, maybe, punctuation in the exhibition because it is so raw yeah. and you really feel all of that when you're looking at her pieces. Um, I, thought, I thought they were quite incredible, actually. And really, um, you really feel something very yeah. strong when you look at them. And the neons are so poetic. I mean, mm. Tracy does amazing poetry. Mm. And so the neons does show her writing as well as her, as her sculptures, as well as her kind of beautiful portraits, her self-portraits. I mean, it's a stunning, I mean, it is stripped bare. Mm. So it's desire stripped bare. It's really seeing the human aspect without anything. And I think it's a very strong, yeah, strong punctuation for the show that you can reflect and connect, actually. I think her work is very connectable within the exhibition. Um, Rachel, I know you, know, you can't choose a favourite piece as such, but <laughs> just in terms of highlights, what would you, what would you say? Well, there's lots of highlights. Um, it was fun trying to choose the masterpieces. Yeah. 
um, that was great. So we had to kind of bargain. As a curator, you have to connect quite early on, two years in advance with institutions to borrow loans. And, and we were lucky that Foundation Baylor gave us the Max Dernst, a beautiful piece of surrealism, which is stunning. It's a, a beautiful sculpture, gold, and it's very, it's almost like a surrealist dream. So we wanted to start off with this dreamlike state, questioning that kind of status of the gaze and the dream and the male's point of view. And another highlight at the Masterworks would be the Lunina that we've got from our own collection here, the National Collection in Ireland, and it's, I think it's 5 BC. And you can see from the very start the notion of female empowerment in Ireland, that this was a Lunina necklace, a gold necklace, that a goddess warrior would have worn. So you can see right from the start, actually, female empowerment, female strength and beauty. And actually, it's very, I'd like to wear that myself. It's very <laughs> desirable. Um, and we juxtapose that with Matthew Barney, uh, who is a very artist, a very American male artist who would look at the notion of myth and mythology. So there's two gold uh, pieces of uh, the Rizra Fundament next to the Lunina, which question then the role of the goddess and Osiris, the Egyptian god that was chopped up into bits. The man was chopped up to bits so he could remarry his wife, I think, in the underworld. So I think somebody else could tell that story better than me. But, but we were questioning that. So that's a good the highlight of the start, the introduction of the show. Then leading into the next part, Cal Fay, who's an amazing artist, and she shows this other world, Second Life. If any of you heard Second Life in the audience, where you can have a life, you can have your own avatar, you can be who you want to be. So she created the Second Life, on a, a video of it, and it's her and her baby, and she creates this city which she wants to live in with her and her baby because she couldn't get it in the real world, where she invites her friends, curators and artists to set up banks of exchange and collaboration, and then they work together. So to me, it's a very futuristic um, version of desire that she's creating her world because she wants it for her and her baby in the future. It, it, it really is an incredible exhibition. I mean, there are so many stories to be told within this one exhibition. It, it just, it's so exciting to hear you talk about it. Um, but finally, Rachel, I just wanted to ask you, is there any one particular artist who has influenced you personally? Over the years, is it hard to choose one? It's hard to choose. I have to say, an artist like Dorothy Cross mm -hmm. or Grace Weir are great influences. They're brilliant Irish artists and for their intellect, their stamina and their creativity. I, I, I admire them and follow them. Yes, incredible. Just a few thank yous before we wind things up. Firstly, to Rachel Thomas, of course. Um, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. First, I want to say thank you to Emma for hosting us this evening. Um, a big thank you to Kildare Village, as always, um, without whom this podcast wouldn't exist. Um, always great working with Val Ford and Emily Murray, so thank you so much for all your support. Um, and finally, just a big thank you to the Image Events team, um, who do such a wonderful job on our events and have been working hard all day to put this event together. So thank you so much, guys. Um, and thank you all so much for coming, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of Smart Casual was brought to you in collaboration with Kildare Village. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, make sure to rate, review and subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify.